So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Darren Petoskey. Uh, Darren is a pure blood when it comes to University of Maryland, starting from undergrad to medical school to residency to chief residency to fellowship to faculty. Through and through, Darren has been here, um, and it pains me to say, uh, come this next year, in a few months, he uh, is uh, taking another avenue in life, and will be leaving here. But before he left, I wanted to make sure that we all could benefit from Darren's wisdom, humor, as you can see on his slide, and uh, and. Um, overall advice that's practical when we are managing uh, liver transplant patients. So thank you, Darren. You guys hear me okay? Yeah, it's good? Okay, great. Um, so I, I think I see a lot of familiar faces from rounding through the various uh, intensive care units with you guys. Um, thank you for inviting me to come, Mike. I, I say invite, he kind of twisted my arm to do it. I, <laughs> I tried every avenue out of it. Um, and uh, sort of the title is not necessarily reflective of what the entire talk will be about. Um, you know, when I asked Mike what to talk about, he kind of gave me a mishmash of things, so of what he wanted me to kind of talk about with you guys. But, um, you know, I, everybody starts with these title slides about what we do, and kind of the thing that I'm most well known for is not yet on this slide. Now, what makes me most famous about being at the University of Maryland is that I was Mike McCurdy's co-intern. <laughs> so, um, and you should have seen him back then. We, we should talk afterwards about some stories about Dr. McCurdy. But uh, Mike and I were first month interns in the, in the old MICU, you know, the 10-bed unit on three, uh, on the third floor uh, of the main hospital. Um, so we go way back. We've been friends for a long time. Um, so when he, when he asked me, you know, I went back and forth about what, what he, you guys wanted to hear about. You guys get talks about how to deal with liver transplant, liver disease, liver failure patients in the ICU. You know, you see all of our post-transplant patients in the ICU. And he, you know, he sort of gave me a mishmash of things to talk about. I was trying to figure out how to connect everything. And then I asked Narav Shaw, who's another friend of mine from Fellowship, and he's like, why are you listening to Mike? Just talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, so just a, my outline is going to be, I, I think it's important, you know, you, when we talk about organ transplant, to understand that it's so different from organ to organ. So you guys get exposed to all different types of organ transplant, liver, kidney, heart, lung, pancreas, everything. And the kind of process of how those thing, decisions are made, organs are allocated, chosen, et cetera, is very different um, from organ to organ. So I wanted to kind of give you guys an overview of how liver transplant evaluations occur, just because probably in the medical ICU and the surgical ICU, it probably seems that there is no process of how that process, how it goes. Um, and that may be still what you're left with at the end of this lecture, but um, you'll get an idea of kind of what, how we think it should go. Um, I also think it's important to know about allocation. So, you know, how do patients get livers? You know, how does this person get one, this person doesn't, how does that work? And then, the other topic he wanted me to dig into is, you know, alcohol use, abuse, um, alcoholic hepatitis, and cirrhosis, and liver transplant. And uh, that, that's kind of where I'll give you some of the more data of the talk about that. And then I wanted to leave a little time at the end for questions. So um, just to give you a global idea, this is what was done in 2015 as far as liver transplant goes. Um, nationally, there were over 7,000 liver transplants, which is actually higher than it's usually in the mid-6,000 range, um, and, I, and it was up last year, and I think it's primarily due to the, the increase in living donors. So the living, living donation in, in liver transplant sort of ebbs and flows. Um, it was really popular in the early 2000s. There was a very publicized donor death. Um, you know, these donors are always healthy, altruistic, three kids, you know, terrible stories. And they die, and then sort of everybody stops transplanting, and then it builds back up and builds back up. And 359 is, for the country, is actually a pretty big number for a living donor. Um, but you can see the discrepancy. There's you know, two time, more than two times as many patients that are listed for transplant that aren't getting transplanted every year. 
So in our region, and I'll explain this a little bit, uh, the, the map is divided up into regions for liver transplant. Um, we have, we're in region two. Um, those are the states uh, and areas listed that are in region two. There's 15, there's 34 transplant centers in that region, but that includes people who just do kidney or just do kidney pancreas. There's 15 centers that do liver transplant. And in region two, we had almost 900 transplants, 82 living, and 2,000 patients listed. And here at the University of Maryland last year was kind of our biggest year yet, 147 liver transplants, which put us in the top five in the country by volume. Um, and we have, we maintain a list of over 400 patients actively listed on our, on, for transplant. So how do you get one? How do you get a liver transplant? Well, um, you can, some people get it by developing fulminant liver failure, and they show up in what I know many of you call as the LICU, um, which could be any of the units that you guys work in. Um, and most of these are from acute viral hepatitis, hepatitis B we see occasionally. We see a lot of acetaminophen overdose. Very few of them wind up going to transplant. Um, uh, you know, other drug-induced liver injury or autoimmune. And as you guys know, if any of you answer express care calls, liver transplant has become one of those keywords for referring physicians to get their, you know, the patients transferred to tertiary care. So, you know, probably if you walk through one of your ICUs, you know, the CICU, the cardiac CTICU, one of your ICUs, and you calculated a MELD score on every patient in that unit, regardless of whether they had liver disease or not, they'd probably all be transplantable because, you know, MELD scores are based on lab values. So many of them have from other reasons, can have an elevated bilirubin, abnormal clotting factors. And you know, so we get these calls from people that, oh, they came in with this, but their MELD score is 40. Well, do they have liver disease? Well, their MELD score is 40. Like, yeah, but do they have, you know, like it's just, this is the circular argument. And that leads to kind of people being brought here because we don't always know what's going on. And we, you know, we find out that, well, they may have other problems. Um, the other group of our patients you know, we see they have known cirrhosis, de they develop a decompensation. Usually these are infections or renal failure or encephalopathy with coma, and they wind up needing ICU level of care. Their MELD scores go up, that's how they get transplanted. Um, and then kind of the population of patients that you guys don't see are the ones that show up in clinic. So they see us in the office, we've been following them for years, they have liver disease, we see them in a group evaluation clinic they get referred in from other private uh, GI practices out in the community or other network hospitals. And we see them as outpatients, um, and then we work up and evaluate them for liver transplant. We do have people who come into clinic with MELD scores of 28. You know, they walk in the door, they're at home, they're just really sick, but they're not hospitalized. So the evaluation process looks something like this. All patients, whether they're seen inpatient or in the outpatient setting, are seen by a hepatologist. Um, they're seen by the transplant surgeons. They're evaluated by, one, we have two social workers on the team. Uh, we have a nutritionist, and then we have a group of nurse coordinators that all see and evaluate the patients. Um, and then their workup, there's a sort of a basic workup that they get, and then, and so, it, and it varies a lot from center to center, but here they get some sort of rigorous cardiac testing, stress tests, depending on what kind of state they're in, chemical or exercise. Sometimes they're nuclear. Sometimes we go to a cardiac cath if it's an older person who's a diabetic and we worry about coronary disease. Some sort of liver imaging. We fight all the time with the radiologists to get patients imaging in the setting of renal failure despite their risk for um, dermatologic complications and a serologic evaluation to work up what, what their liver disease could be from if it's not known, and then other testing depending on their medical history. Um, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what you need to get listed. Many other centers have a laundry list of things that are required to get listed, and they won't list you until you've completed them. So, you know, people can get on our list with a good stress test, you know, their visit and liver imaging, whereas, you know, that I know down in other hospitals, like in the D.C. area, they require bone density scans, you know, um, certain 
they, if they're not, if they haven't had their Hep A and Hep B vaccinations yet, they won't put them on the list. I mean, there's there's different barriers to getting on the list at different centers, um, and it's highly variable from center to center. Um, we'll list people as long as we have plans to get their colonoscopy done and all these things, but some places won't even put you on the list unless those are done. Um, the patients then, whether they're seen inpatient or outpatient, are discussed at our listing meeting. So we, that's held every Thursday afternoon. Um, all parties attend that have seen the patients. Um, and really, everybody has an opportunity to state their case. Um, some voices are heard. Some voices are not heard. Um, but we all talk about it. Um, patients at that meeting are decided whether we decide whether we're going to continue their workup and list them. So we discuss patients as we see them. And then we, if we feel like they are a candidate to move forward with, then we go through with the cardiac testing. This is in the outpatient setting, cardiac testing and so on and so forth. So they're kind of prepared to list. They're deferred for reasons that could be, you know, they need, we're worried that their cardiac testing is going to be positive. So we wait till the cardiac testing comes back before we list them. They may need alcohol rehab, various different things, um, or they're denied, which is, Honestly, you know, a very small amount of, of patients that are sort of denied off the bat. Um, some centers vote in this type of meeting, uh, which I've been advocating for uh, for a long time, but we don't. Um, and, um, and, and it's important that, you know, there is some kind of minimal listing criteria. You know, lots of patients have cirrhosis. Some believe that all patients with cirrhosis needs liver transplants to survive. Uh, most hepatologists will tell you that, you know, we've got plenty of patients who've had cirrhosis for 15 years without decompensation, and they do just fine, live a normal life without needing a liver transplant. So most of the time, patients in the, out, in the outpatient setting, I refer my patients who have a reasonable MELD score, usually over 15, um, with some sort of decompensation. So they've either ascites that we're managing, they've got some encephalopathy, they've got some... Um, edema problems that require diuretics, variceal bleed in the past, something that they would truly benefit from a liver transplant. There's been studies that have looked at you know, what's the MELD score that you, that where you, the benefit of the surgery outweighs the risk of the surgery. And that's usually, it's around 15. Um, so, you know, some, many centers will not list patients who have MELD scores of seven, eight, nine, you know, Normal people can have MELD scores of seven, eight, nine. Uh, I have Gilbert's, which is a hereditary enzyme problem with bilirubin metabolism. So I always have a bilirubin. It's, it's nothing's wrong with me. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but it's a benign condition. My bilirubin is usually around two. So my MELD is like, if you calculate it at any time, it's nine or ten. You know, but so I don't need to be listed. But um, so there, you know, we there are certain patients who probably don't need to be on the list even though they come see us. Um, obviously, people have a risk for getting sick if they're not taken care of. Um, so we like to capture as many people as we can, at least get them into the system so they can be cared for and monitored. Um, depending, so if somebody's listed in the outpatient setting, they then get followed. So they have to have lab work done to calculate a MELD score with some frequency, which is dependent on how sick they are. So the higher the MELD, the more often you have to get labs done and to update that MELD. Uh, the, so if your MELD is over 30, you actually need to get weekly labs to update your MELD. And this is just to prevent kind of people who can sort of fool with the system a little bit. You know, you can capture a MELD when somebody's got acute renal failure from diuretics and their baseline MELD may be 10, and all of a sudden it's 24. And then a week later, when you take them off the diuretics, it goes back down to 10. So this prevents them from staying at a MELD of 24 when they're not really a MELD of 24 for a long time. Um, and then usually about every two years, people on the list as an outpatient will get reevaluated. So they get a visit, a stress test, full lab evaluation if they're not transplanted. Um, so that's the basics of how it works. There's some details and nuances that come into play in patients that you guys will see that I wanted to mention. Um, as of the last six months, we've been, instead of the standard MELD score, um, we're now using what's called the MELD sodium score. So it just includes sodium levels into the MELD score 
most of the calculators have updated to include this. And it's been talked about for years and years, but just implemented in the past six months or so. Um, and having a low sodium, which is a, very, is a negative prognostic indicator for patients with cirrhosis, so we know that patients with cirrhosis who have low sodium levels are, have a higher mortality risk. Um, so it can lead to dramatic changes in the MELD score. And I just wanted to give you an example of this. So if I take a person with an INR, I just made it easy, INR bilirubin creatinine of two and a normal sodium, their MELD score is 23. If they get on diuretics and their MELD score drops to 127, which you probably, none of us would really do anything about, we wouldn't change our management, you know, all of a sudden their MELD score jumps to 29 um, just from a change in their sodium level, all else being equal. Um, so it, this is now a factor in, um, in liver transplant. Um, this is probably true with all organs, but I just bring it up because it plays a role in organ allocation is that, you know, it's actually better to be a rare blood type when it comes to transplant. Um, you're com you know, it, it sounds like there'd be less donors, but what really matters is you're competing against less people for the same organ. Um, so on our and, and obviously AB is the rarest blood type. We see very few patients with AB, but they usually get transplanted regardless of MELD score within a month um, of listing. Their MELD score could be 19, you know, which we'd never, nobody would ever get a liver in other blood groups. Um, there's just, we have a list of one person on that in, who's AB. Um, B is next most rare. A and then O is most common, and O is the one we struggle with. Those are the patients who have to have MELD scores in the 30s to get transplanted, um, just because there's so many on the list. And then I wanted to just mention MELD exception points as well. Um, this also plays a role in um, how people are transplanted. So there are certain standardized reasons why people get extra MELD points, other than what you'd calculate. Uh, the most common reason is hepatocellular cancer, and this um, this changes. This has had changed as of last year as well. Um, when people, you have to have a tumor that's within certain criteria by size and number, and once that's proven and you don't have metastatic disease based on a chest CT, then you can apply for this exception, and then six months later your MELD score, regardless of what it is by labs, and a lot of these people who have HCC may have completely compensated liver disease and have a native MELD score of seven with no complications, but after six months, automatically their MELD score goes to 28, and they're you know, immediately in the running for transplant. This has changed a lot over the years. You know, People are concerned that the liver cancer patients are preferentially advantaged for transplant by having this exception. Um, and what, this recent change occurred, so it, it used to be when, as soon as you got listed, you would get a MELD of 22 if you had HCC within criteria. Then every three months that you weren't transplanted, it would go up by 10%. So by six months, you were at 28 anyway. Um, but what this does is it rules out, it will exclude people who have biologically bad tumors. So regardless of treatment, some of these patients in six months with a bad biology tumor will have metastatic disease, infiltrative disease, and this is an attempt to kind of weed out those people by you know, making people get treated for their tumor and then wait to see what happens. And most of the people with good biology tumors will get treated, their tumors will you know, be ablated by imaging, they'll be fine at six months, and then they'll get transplanted. Metastases develop in the interim, how does that change? Right, so if, they, if somebody develops, you know, if their tumor continues to grow despite treatment, their AFP gets up, goes up, you know, then they, they're all, yeah, they basically get inactivated or taken off the list. Um, there are, the other, I, I listed this exception too because you probably see patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome in, in the various ICUs. It's more common than um, we think we just probably don't test for it enough, but this is kind of the, the way standard exception points work. They get, if you can document hepatopulmonary syndrome by documenting a shunt and documenting a PaO2 less than 60 on room air, um, then they get 22 points, um, and then every three months that they're listed and not transplanted, it goes up by 10%. Um, there are several other standard exceptions for pulmonary hypertension, there's one, and there's a couple for some of the pediatric liver diseases. 
Um, and then there's what we call non-standard um, meld exceptions where the physician can appeal to the review board and say, look, my patient's meld score is 12, but they're really sick. You know, they've got unmanageable ascites, they're bleeding from their varices, they're constantly in the hospital. For whatever reason, their MELD score is 12, and it's not reflective of how sick they are, and you can appeal for additional points. This is reviewed regionally, so within Region 2. Um, I think there's four people on the review board at a time, and they vote. And if you get a majority, then, then you get the exception points. Um, so uh, common things are not given. You know, you can't, somebody doesn't get an exception for like refractory ascites or you know, itching related to their liver disease, but um, there are ways you can try to get people extra points through this system. Uh, this is our, the UNOS regional map. So um, the country's divided into 11 regions. We're here in region two. Um, within each region, there are transplant centers that are served by what's called an organ procurement organization. And that is a business that who their job is to go out and coordinate the, um, the uh, allocation and procurement of organs within the, in those general areas. So we have two in the state of Maryland, what's called Living Legacy Foundation, which services University and Hopkins. So Hopkins and us, when there's a liver available in our region, um, the, both of our lists go, get compiled on a computer screen and so, you know, if they have people listed with higher melds than we do, then the organs go there, they can turn down the organ, then it goes to the next person, and so on and so forth. Um, the Georgetown is a, what we call a single center OPO, so they don't compete with any other people for their organs, um, which is always nice. Um, and, um, and then, you know, throughout, uh, like in Pennsylvania, there's like eight transplant centers, um, all in the same area that, um, you know, with where Penn, Jefferson, um, Einstein, there's a whole bunch of universities there that have liver transplant centers. So it's a lot more congested as the further north you go. So how does allocation work? Um, so this is if, and this has also changed, um, 23, June 2013, this system changed. The idea is always to get the organs to the sickest patients first. So it's, um, and the way that they, Decide this is when an organ becomes available um, in the region. So say it was in around Baltimore. There's borders for where our organ procurement organization operates. And first they offer the organ. They look to see if there's any status one patients in our, or, or in our OPO. Status one patients are, you have to have specific criteria to meet status one. Usually these are the fulminant patients who are intubated on dialysis in the ICU. Um, so those get options first. If there's none in the OPO, they look in the entire region for status one, so entire region two. If there's no status one patients, then it comes back to the OPO, and they look for patients with a meld over 35. And this is where the, the scheme has changed over the past couple of years. But again, the idea is transplant the sickest patients first. Um, so if there's no meld over 35 between us and Hopkins, then that organ gets offered to anybody in the region who has a meld score over 35. So there's a lot more exportation of organs going on than there used to be. Then in the old scheme, the next step down was just anybody in the OPO with a meld, I think, over 19. So, there, so that's how, you know, there could have been somebody at Maryland with a, with a meld of 20, and who got an organ over somebody at Jefferson with a meld of 39. And so this was an attempt to try to make sure organs were getting um, allocated appropriately. And so it goes out to the region, then it comes back to the OPO again, meld 29 to 34. Um, there are very few patients and centers that do multivisceral transplant, liver, intestine. Um, so Georgetown does some, um, and uh, Pittsburgh does some of these. Um, so they, you know, they get offered out there, and then it finally comes back to the OPO for, you know, the, the standard not as sick patients. Um, so it's really changed um, when this went into effect um, was June 2013. Prior to that, we were doing about 60 liver transplants a year, and between Hopkins and Maryland, we do about 
between 50 and 60 each, so for a total of about 120 transplants between the two of us. And then, and once this started happening, because we have such high meld patients, both of our volumes went, that the next year after it happened, both of our volumes went up to like 90 livers a year because we were importing livers from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, um, all over that, our region because of the way the scheme changed. Uh, most patients think that time matters. So time really plays no role in liver transplant. Right? In kidney transplant, you get on the list as soon as you can. It takes three to five years to get an organ and you get transplanted. In livers, you could be on the list for 17 years and your meld could finally get up to 29 and then somebody could roll in the door with a meld of 30 and they're gonna get transplanted before you. And that's just the way the system is built. Transplant the sickest patients first. So the only time it comes into play if like two people, same blood group, same meld score, and there's an organ offer, and if someone's been on the list longer, then it usually goes to that person. But that's pretty rare. So this was the big change that occurred two years ago. Um, so I wanted to switch gears. That's Mike's son, by the way, not mine. <laughs> um, switch gears and talk a little bit about alcoholic liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis. The bottle's empty, relax, people. Um, and this is just a, a, a pathologic slide about what a liver looks like with alcoholic hepatitis. Um, these pink cells are the hepatocytes, these are the nuclei, and you get what are called ballooned hepatocytes. You may see this in pathologic reports where they get really big and filled with fat and cytoplasm. And then what this is, this structure here is called Mallory's hyaline. Um, Mallory bodies we talk about on liver biopsies of alcoholic hepatitis, um, and that's basically just degraded cell components that form into a conglomerate in the cell, and these are pretty characteristic for alcoholic hepatitis. You can also see them in non-alcoholic hepatitis, like NASH patients, so um, it's not, a, it's not um, a defining characteristic, but it's often seen. Um, so you guys have seen tons of patients with alcoholic hepatitis. Um, that's what we do here at the University of Maryland, is take care of patients with alcoholic hepatitis, it seems like. Um, and usually, the, the key things to realize is that in the vast majority of patient cases, that you should not see AST and ALT above 300 with alcoholic hepatitis. Very, I mean, there may be a few that squeak a little higher to the 500 range, but you get patients that come in with ASTs of eight, nine, a thousand, it's, you know, it's not only alcohol. It may be some alcohol, but there's something else going on to make those LFTs go up. AST, ALT, this classic teaching, the ratio is typically two to one with chronic alcoholism. The patients will usually have a leukocytosis. Um, this obviously can be from infection, um, but we have patients who get excluded for infection. They can have white counts as high as 40 to 50,000 just from the hepatitis itself. Um, they typically have are jaundice, they're encephalopathic, they're in renal failure, they have ascites. They look like a decompensated cirrhotic, but not all of them necessarily have cirrhosis of the liver. So some of these patients will come in and they've been on an alcohol binge and their, their liver will be huge, right? Cirrhotic livers are typically small and shrunken and you'll be able to feel their liver down in their pelvis. So these are patients who may not have cirrhosis of the liver, they may just have a severely inflamed liver from alcoholic hepatitis, but they look exactly like a decompensated cirrhotic. They look like, and they can get portal hypertension, all the same complications, but they really don't, they may not have any fibrosis in their liver. Um, as you know, medical treatment is very limited. Um, we talk a lot about steroids. Um, a lot of people talk about pentoxifiline, um, you know, anti-inflammatory types of medications, which if you read the literature over the years, it's a, it's a very vast um, body of literature, um, but it all sucks. And they basically show that nobody really knows that these things do any good. Um, all of us will have anecdotal stories of patients we put on steroids and they got better. Does that mean the steroids made them better or just that they couldn't drink while they were in the hospital made them better? We don't really know. Um, and I'll show you one major study that recently came out on that. And then we also use prediction models. You guys use prediction models in the ICU all the time. You've heard us talk about the Madry's discriminant function. Willis Madry was a hepatologist at Hopkins back in the day who created a score uh, that you can find in a standard calculator. 
And the, the sort of magic number is a discriminant function over 32 in studies are the patients that have been shown to benefit from treatment of alcoholic hepatitis, steroid use specifically. Um, so there's some data that shows if the MELD scores, if the discriminant function is really high, that it may, they may be do worse with steroids. And I think it's just a marker of how sick they are more than anything else. Um, and then something else that you guys may not be f as familiar with, which is called the Lilly model. Um, this is more, this is a newer system, a prediction model, and I'll go into that in some more detail in a second. Um, so the most recent study that came out about prednisone or prednisolone in patients with alcoholic hepatitis was what's called the STOP-AH study, STOP Alcoholic Hepatitis. Um, and this was published in the New England Journal last year. Um, and this was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized study in, in the United Kingdom, uh, many centers in the United Kingdom. And this is probably one of the biggest patient populations we've ever seen within a, in this type of study, 1,100 patients randomized to four different groups. So they either got all placebo, they got prednisolone plus placebo, pentoxifylline plus placebo, and prednisone and pentoxifylline. Um, and what they found, just to give you the, 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 the primary endpoint, was looking at mortality at 28 days. And they found nothing significant. So looking at all of these different groups, they found that prednisone was associated with a non-significant mortality reduction at 28 days, but that mortality reduction did not, hold, did not follow out for a year. So and these, are, these are the curves. So it's, the top left is prednisolone or not. And this is where you see the 90-day little split in the curves there as far as survival. So these are the proportion, so a little more survival than the ones who didn't get it by 90, or sorry, 28 days. But this was non-significant. If you look at the pentoxifylline, it's clearly no different. And then when they followed survival in all four groups out to a year, there's clearly no difference. So that 28-day non-significant survival doesn't hold out in the long run. So basically their conclusion was we have no medical treatment for alcoholic hepatitis um, as a result of that. What we, many of us, that being said, many of us still will consider using steroids in patients. I think pentoxifylline is sort of dead in this literature after this. Um, but we still consider prednisolone. And most of us use this model, um, which was described in, in hepatology in 2007 um, from a French group. Um, where they used a scoring system to identify patients with alcoholic, alcoholic hepatitis and discriminant function factor over 32 um, who did not respond to steroids and who were more likely to die. And so this uses their age, their renal function, their albumin, um, their clotting factors, and sort of an evolution of their bilirubin. And this was sort of born out of what most of us practiced, which was if people had a high discriminant function, we thought it was alcoholic hepatitis, we'd give them prednisolone for a week. If their bilirubin didn't drop after a week, we'd probably say they failed it and they weren't going to get better with it. And this is basically a validated model using the same idea um, where they, you input you know, all of this day zero data and then you put in their day seven bilirubin and it comes out um, with a number. Uh, the, the patients who have a, a number above 0.45 have a marked decrease in six-month survival. So 25% versus so 85% die with a cutoff above that. And basically, these are people who are non-responders to steroids with severe alcoholic hepatitis. And this proved to be better than Child's Pew, Discriminant Function, MELD score, and Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, so we all use this. Um, it's, that's the website, lilymodel.com, where you can find it. Um, so we've talked about alcoholic hepatitis. Well, and we all know that people follow this idea that you should be abstinent for six months from alcohol prior to transplant. So where did that come from? Why do centers abide by this six-month rule and we don't at the University of Maryland? Um, so the, in, in, this first came out in 1997. The American Society of Transplantation and the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, our two main societies, met to determine what are the minimal criteria required to put people on a liver transplant list. Now, 1997 was before the MELD score started being used. That was in 2002. Um, and they concluded that 
patients with chronic parenchymal liver disease should apply to patients, uh, sorry, the criteria should apply to all patients, including those with alcoholic liver disease. And that they said there is a strong consensus that most alcoholic patients should be abstinent for at least six months before they can be listed. And um, if you go back into the, um, and they recognized in the same statement that this was going to exclude people with alcoholic hepatitis from being transplanted. Um, although they were still vague, they used the word most. Um, and this is not a rule. So this is not like patients cannot be transplanted if they haven't met this rule. It's a suggested criteria for centers to follow. So should we recommend this to, you know, is this, is this a, a realistic goal for patients? So six months is arbitrary, right? In why would, you know, if they're five months and they haven't drank or they're 10 months and they haven't drank, why, it, does that really predict, right, what we care about, which is their risk of recidivism after transplant? And if you go back and go through all the data where they made that, these, these are really small studies um, and it, the data is not good and nobody really understands where that rule came from other than it was just a consensus of people sitting around a table. Um, if you look at, and so people are really interested in this and there's other data that's out there that really shows us that there's other factors that are more important than length of time of abstinence. Um, you know, we, and we, we see this in our own patient population. You, you know, we look at patients who stopped drinking and three years later they got transplanted. They have the same recidivism rates as people who are a month without drinking. So that's really, you know, this rule doesn't, is, is used by a lot of centers, but it's not really based in any good data. Um, and, the, and the other factor is that acute alcoholic hepatitis, as we discussed, has a very high mortality. So we said 85% of people will die within six months who don't respond to steroids. And there's no medical therapy for it. We just went through that information as well. So the sick patients won't, won't survive six months. Most of them won't survive outside of the hospital. Um, you know, a lot of them will either, you know, they go to hospice or they die in the hospital. So it brings up a lot of ethical topics that we talk about a lot. So, you know, how do we decide these things? You know, if you look at the utility argument, you know, these are patients who are sick. They have advanced liver disease and they're likely to die without a transplant. Um, if you look at outcomes, which I'll get into a little bit, um, and this is a little bit old data, but it, as most patients are being transplanted for viral hepatitis, hepatitis C, and this was before we had treatments for hepatitis C, those patients actually did very poorly after transplant. They, you know, their five-year survivals were only around 50% for patients with hepatitis C because we had nothing to treat them with. Um, so the, so the people would much rather transplant an alcoholic you know, and then put them into therapy or do some kind of intervention because you can prevent their liver disease from coming back, you know, if you have a good system for that. Hepatitis C is 100% recidivism, right? In alcoholic disease, we're talking about the data is somewhere between 20 and 40% return to drinking versus 100% with hep C. So there's a lot of utility arguments for these questions. Um, and the outcomes are, if just as good, if not better, for alcoholics. And then the other people will argue, well, this is a self-inflicted disease. They did it to themselves. Why are we going to transplant them and risk that they're going to do it again? Um, but is that really different than the majority of our patients who contracted hep C from IV drug use back in the day? You know, that's a self-inflicted disease. How about our NASH patients, you know, that are overweight and don't do what they're supposed to do? Nobody has any argument they have to be six months abstinent from eating before we transplant them, right? I mean, we don't talk about that. Um, people who try to kill themselves with taking acetaminophen, right? Most of them are young people. You know, the, the, the age for the acetaminophen overdoses is like 20s to 30s. Um, we transplant them if they need it. Or people who get fulminant hep B from drug use or various other, you know, ways. We don't question that stuff. But for some reason, alcohol has this stigma associated with it. Um, and then also there's you know, the risk of recidivism, which is quite high in this population. So people will argue that you know, we're treating similar diseases in different ways based on social stigma, personal perceptions and interpretations of what should happen. Um, so you know, we have to think about those things. Well, what about the perception of the public? 
you know, what about the perception of the other patients on the list who are, you know, your dad is next to be transplanted and then some alcoholic shows up in the ER with a melda 40 and gets transplanted before your dad. You know, how, is, how are you going to feel about that? How are the patients that have been listed going to feel about that if they know, you know, that this is a practice? Um, so it's, it's a lot of tough ethical discussions. Um, so what data do we have? Uh, how much time? I have till one. Okay. Um, so the majority of the data that we have per, uh, is about patients with cir alcoholic cirrhosis because that's what we've been transplanting for many, many years, not alcoholic hepatitis. We do have some data on survival, recidivism. The problem with recidivism is how do you define it? So does that mean I had a drink at my daughter's wedding? You know, does that mean I drink once a week, a glass of wine with dinner when I go out with my wife? Does that mean I drink four times a week? Does that mean I drink every day? You know, no, there's no standard definition what recidivism means. Um, so that's, that's the trouble with the data. And then how do the graphs survive even when people drink? And this is the argument that comes about as far as outcomes. Um, so we'll get into a little bit of that. And the literature is really an evolving target, right? Because people weren't doing any transplants for alcoholic hepatitis. There are many centers in the country that are now doing this. And there's an evolving body of literature. So some survival data from 2010, American Journal of Transplant from Europe. They looked at almost 10,000 transplants for alcoholic liver disease over a, um, over a, over this period. I can't subtract that fast. 10, 17 years, 17-year um, period. Uh, and they looked at one, three, five, and 10-year graph survival. Um, so 84% one-year survival is pretty um, equivalent to what our one-year survival is at this center. Um, you know, 78, three year, and five year is actually really good. And 10 years, this is all probably, this is decent, really good survival overall. Um, this was significantly higher survival than patients with viral disease. Remember, I told you we had hep C that we couldn't treat. Those patients were dying faster after transplant. And cryptogenic, you know, usually we don't know what's causing it, and sometimes it comes back afterwards. Um, and viral disease was an independent risk factor for mortality. So it's hard to pick out just the alcoholics. Most of our hep C patients are drinkers also. And so if you, when you include hep C as part of their um, reason for transplant, it kind of equalizes the, that it brings down the alcoholic survival because of the viral disease. Um, and the causes of death and graft failure are what we tell most of our patients is what happens after transplant. You live on to die of something else. Um, so most of, a lot of our patients get tumors and, and cardi live on to develop cardiovascular disease. Um, so survival, um, how do these patients survive? This is another major study that um, I still don't understand how it got published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it did, um, from 2011. Um, this is a um, French study. This is the same group that created or studied the Lil model. This is the same group that did this. And there were seven transplant centers in Europe, in France, that followed the following criteria for transplant. So patients were eligible for a, a liver transplant with alcoholic hepatitis if they had a discriminant function over 32. They never had a prior episode of alcoholic hepatitis. So this was their presenting hospitalization of their disease, never been told they had an alcohol problem or to stop drinking. Um, they had a Lil score that was over 0.45 despite getting prednisolone. 90% of the patients in this study got steroids. Um, and so that was the high cutoff where they were, had an 85% mortality. And they had extremely strict psychosocial criteria, which is very different from what you guys are used to. Um, these, they had created like six groups of people that evaluated the patient. Um, surgeons, hepatologists, social workers, similar people, that they all had to agree together that this was a low-risk patient from a psychosocial standpoint. And they, people were not, were excluded from transplant if they had any psych diagnosis, including depression. So you could argue that most people coming in with alcoholic hepatitis probably have undiagnosed depression. There's a reason why they're drinking. Um, nobody could be on narcotics. So this immediately excludes 95% of our population, right? Everybody's on some sort of oxycodone for their chronic back pain. So no patients in this group were transplanted if they had any narcotic use. 
in the, in the past. And this is their big survival curve. So I'll walk you through this. This is survival here. The first line is actually patients who responded to steroids. So this is patients who got better with steroids and did not need transplant. They had 85% survival without a transplant. And then the other two lines are patients, both patients who underwent transplant, sorry, these are the patients who underwent transplant who had, who did not respond to steroids. Um, and this is looking at six month survival. They had a 77% six month survival versus if they did not get transplanted and they did not respond to steroids, they were looking at 30% six month survival. Um, so this is why it's in the New England Journal, but I want to, you, you need to pay attention to the number of patients in the study. This was a study of 26 patients um, that somehow squeaked into the New England Journal of Medicine and vast publicity and, you know, our surgeons went, yay, look what we can do, you know, <laughs> see this study. Um, but they had three patients who relapsed after six months, so they only, we only had data, I think, we didn't have survival data out to a year, but they had some recidivism. So three patients out of 26 is about 12% of their patients had, had recidivism. Um, so um, our center and a bunch of other centers kind of got together that have been transplanting for alcoholic hepatitis and did a survey study. This is not published um, data yet. Um, it's still being accumulated, but um, there were a survey was sent out to all transplant centers. 19 U.S. transplant centers said that they have transplanted patients for alcoholic hepatitis. Only seven centers submitted data um, to us to talk about what they're transplanting and how we're doing it. Um, a total, out of those seven, there were a total of 40 patients who underwent early transplant for alcoholic hepatitis. 39 of them came from the University of Maryland. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but there were many patients transplanted here. Um, 40 patients, who, and we had a median follow-up of about two and a half years. And the big difference from the other study, the French study that I showed you, was that only about 30% of our patients got steroids compared to 90% of the patients in that study. And that, that was a protocol study. They were supposed to be given steroids unless there was a contraindication. This is just retrospective data. But, you know, when we looked at why people didn't, it's typically because they were infected, or, or just what we called um, provider's choice to not give steroids. So we don't, we're still digging into some of that information. Our one-year survival for these 40 patients was 100%. So this is better than the French data. Nobody died in a year. Um, the, the data is, as far as recidivism, or what we called alcohol relapse, was 22%. Um, we've looked at our center data a little closely, closer, and. Ours is, you know, this is a high estimate at 60%, but, um, you know, depending on the criteria used, there's, you know, for a transplant, there's the looser the criteria, the more recidivism. So, um, so we have probably closer to 40% in some of our data here, recidivism. Um, other studies that have looked at this, so again, this is an alcoholic cirrhosis population based on when the study was done. Um, this was a prospective study. They looked at 167 patients, um, all had psychosocial evaluations, all but four had more than six months of sobriety. So the six-month rule was basically all of these patients. And at five years after transplant, 42% had used alcohol at least once, 22% of those within the first year. So 22% is exactly what we saw, 22% in our consortium data. And these are patients who had six months of sobriety. So again, sort of questioning whether that rule really means anything. Um, and then they looked a little bit more at binge drinking and consecutive day drinking, which is where we get into this trouble of how to define recidivism. So what are the prognostic factors? Um, you know, we, we've, I hope I've shown you that length of abstinence doesn't really matter. Um, what does predict recidivism? Lack of insight into addiction. So people who come in and say, you know, I drink every day. Well, why do you have liver failure? I don't know. You know, well, and you can tell them every day that it's alcohol, and then you go ask them, and they're defensive. Well, it's not because I drink. You know, so these are the people who are likely, I mean, that's common sense, right? Um, social isolation. So the other things, no job, no home, no companion. Um, you'll be surprised what happens when people are about to die from their liver disease. Ten family members come in. I'll do whatever it takes for Johnny. I haven't seen him in ten years, but if he needs a transplant, I'll give him mine. You know, take mine. and. 
You know, we get all this family support and then they get transplanted and six months later, there's nobody. So, you know, the families don't want their loved ones to, they don't want to be responsible for their loved ones dying. So they will come out in force and then they will disappear. That's what we see in a lot of cases. Not everybody falls into that. Um, comorbid psychiatric illness. So including polysubstance abuse, big risk factor, and also multiple failed rehab attempts. So patients who have been drinkers for long times. And that's why the French study kind of excluded this, excluded this. You know, they, they were very strict about who was transplanted. Um, what, what kind of uh, psychosocial support exists for our patients following transplant? So we're working on this. Um, we have a, um, there's, oh, sorry. Yes, what, what kind of uh, social support exists for our patients after transplant? And the answer is right now, there's really nothing. Um, other than family support and we see them regularly and we ask them and we screen them for alcohol use the people who are high risk um, John Lamatino one of the other surgeons and uh, the social workers and myself have and he's creating a um, is, uh, writing for a grant to have an intervention after transplant so a lot of these patients can't get that intervention before transplant because they're so sick they're hospitalized for a month so they haven't drank for a month and then they get transplanted and then they, it's, you know, it's like PTSD. They have to figure out how to return to a normal life without drinking again. So the idea is if we create an intervention or a program that is, exists after transplant, you know, can we use that as a way to mitigate all these factors that we can't figure out before transplant? So we can put them through a program and, and so that's kind of in the works, but there's really nothing that anybody does other than seeing them often and having them visit with a support groups or something that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we have a big liver transplant support group. There's a, it's a Facebook site um, that all of our patients have access to. There's hundreds and hundreds of patients that sort of go back and forth with each other, like I'm having this, what do you think? You know, that exists. But, you know, the people who want, you know, are gonna go back to drinking are probably not gonna access that kind of stuff. Um, I'm gonna, kind of go through this and just show you grass survival again. Um, this was another st older study looking at grass survival. Um, and the, um, again, about 22% drank within one year after transplant. Some of these were heavy drinkers. They just showed that heavy drinkers were more, much more likely to have late rejection due to non-adherence. Most of our rejection episodes are early because we're not fully immunosuppressing patients, and we have very little late rejection. All of our late rejection is when people decide to stop taking their medicines. Um, so the alcoholics have a higher risk for this. Um, and you know they did biopsies on patients as well. They found patients with alcoholic hepatitis post-transplant, and one that had cirrhosis at about three years post-transplant from alcohol recidivism. So, um, and in this study, alcohol relapse was responsible for 15% of death in heavy drinkers. So. I think the, the bottom line is some people will squeak through, you know, if they have kind of, if they do cut down their drinking a little bit. Um, but the people who drink heavily after transplant are gonna have recurrent problems and die earlier than they should. I mean, that's kind of common sense. Um, so I'll just put these up here. Um, just to think about, you know, this is a, alcoholic liver disease is, is more and more common, right? We're wiping out hepatitis C. 10 to 15 years, there'll be no hepatitis C left. Our patients will all be transplanted for NASH or alcohol. Um, we are seeing a ton of young people with al severe alcoholic hepatitis. We're transplanting 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 29-year-olds. Um, so what do we do with people like that? You know, are we gonna, do you let, you know, a 22-year-old die because they made some stupid choices early in life? Um, you know, it's, these are the tough decisions that we have to grapple with, um, what to do with these patients, um, you know, from a resource utilization standpoint. Um, survival is really not worse in these patients, um, and that's an important thing. Recidivism rates are variable across the literature, but they're high regardless. Um, and we, the recurrent alcohol use can impair grass survival, but most of our patients are not dying from drinking. Um, so, sorry I ran on the line, but questions? Mike? Thanks, Darren. Um, so first of all, does, I have a few questions. Um, does uh, allocation, designation, factor into physical condition? Nutritional status, strength, you know, muscle mass, et cetera? Um, 
it factors into whether we think patients are trans, sorry, the question was if nutritional status impacts our decisions about our organ allocation, and the answer is no. Um, it impacts our decision about whether we will transplant somebody or actually keep them on the list. Uh, but if we think they're transplantable, then it doesn't factor into allocation. Kind of leads to part two is one year survival really um, the ideal target that we should be attempting to achieve. I mean, it, instead, you know, what, what kind of quality of life uh, sure. metrics are being assessed? Sure. So, um, I mean, if you look, you know, you guys see the patients that are really, really sick when we transplant them. You don't see what they look like six months later. Um, and if they have, you know, a good outcome from a transplant, no matter how, you know, nutritionally deficient and deplete, and they're, you know, these, the, if they have a good outcome, they do really well. So you, we see them six months later, and they look like normal people again. So this is, a, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to... Um, deny somebody because they're so sick from their disease, um, you know, I mean, we've had patients with bulimia and eating disorders and things that we've denied because we think that they're likely not to do well afterwards. Um, but I think most people, you know, most people that have been transplanted um, that, you know, do well, which is the majority of the patients, I mean, our survival, one-year survival is like 85 to 90 percent, you know, that they will tell you that they'd do it again. And like one one year living at home, functioning independently. Yeah, kind of yeah. I mean, we have you know we have a handful of patients that have a three month hospitalization, um, you know, because of other factors. You know, I uh, we transplanted a patient of mine out of the MICU who was a high meld and broke her hip right before she came in to the hospital. Meld score went up. You know, we she's got she's like. Yeah, you know, great social support, not a drinker, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. We transplanted her a month later, fixed her hip. She's been in the hospital for 110 days today, but with a rehab stay in between. But she's probably going to go home tomorrow, walking, going upstairs, eating, very happy to be alive. You know, her daughter's getting married in April, wants to live to see that. So, so you guys see kind of the worst of it. <laughs> and then... It'd be nice if we walked them back through the unit six months later so that you could see them. Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, uh, great talk. Great overview. Um, actually, that's a good point that I actually wanted to bring out with the, the surgical team, as well as some of our other surgical teams. Like, we see these patients that have been hanging out in the ICU for months yeah. after whatever, and you know, it would be great so, to have a couple of them come back. And, a lot of our patients will go when they, you know, they see us in the hospital clinic, which is near the transplant floor, and so they'll they'll go from seeing us and then go over to the floor and talk to the nurses that they spent that they kind of, you know, when they're with you guys, they're not with it. <laughs> so, they, um, but you know, some of them do go walk back through the ICUs, and it's you know, you it, we should do more of it. You're right. So yeah, that's My main question I was going to ask before that was, and a lot of people, a lot of patients are coming here from other. Centers. Yeah. Like, uh, you transfer in. So, um, how, so we have a decent catchment area. You know, yes. Bit, how big of a problem is it that then they go back to home and the other end of Maryland or somewhere else and, and losing contact with yeah. them and they're not getting the medical support? Right. We're talking about family support is a key thing, but also the medical support is going to be the same. If they're yeah. So the, the question is about patients who we transplant that come from far away and how do they get support? Medically, when they um, when they go back home, um, it is something that you know we're we deal with. Um, you know, we we do have a pretty wide catchment area. We've transplanted patients who are six hours away. You know, in the end of West Virginia. You know, and come come here. So the patients, you know, for the most part, in the very beginning, will come back and forth. You know, they we sort of make them come back and forth um, until they're stable enough that they don't need to come back for a month or two months or three months. Um, you know, usually when they go into their outlying hospital with a problem and they say, oh, I got transplanted, you know, that's all anybody needs to hear, you know, before they're on the line with express care and sending them back, whether it's for like an infected toenail or for, you know, real liver problems. So we managed to get all, some of them back. Others, um, we work, you know, we have patients that get transplanted and then move to Florida. You know, and, and there are many transplant centers who will not take patients, they will not take care of patients they have not transplanted. 
Um, so we struggle with trying to get patients into other centers for follow-up. Um, so if our patients, I've had patients move down to Florida and I can't get a transplant center to see him. So he gets on his motorcycle, drives 900 miles to see me, you know, every six months and drives back home. Um, it's just, you know, we, so, um, so that people who get transplanted are very tied to the center. They don't want to go somewhere else unless they make a big move. Uh, in terms of patient selection, what's the upper limit um, that would be an acceptable BMI? So the question is if there's a BMI limit on liver transplant in the, 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 at this center, no. Um, at other centers, um, there, you know, some centers have, again, these are random numbers that people just say, well, I think it's too hard to do a BMI over 50. Um, so that's like Richmond, Pittsburgh, you know, some other centers will say 50 is their cutoff. There's no data out there that says they're going to do worse. I mean, naturally, there's probably a higher wound infection, post-op wound infection risk. But from a transplant standpoint, as long as they are, it is technically able to be done, the outcomes are no worse just because of obesity. So, um, so it, it, there, there isn't data that shows that it matters. It's really a technical difficulty aspect of the surgery. Any other questions ex excluding Mike? <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys.